Welcome to 15 Minutes of Feminism, part of our On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin at Ms. Magazine platform. As you know, we're a show that reports, rebels, and tells it just like it is. And on 15 Minutes of Feminism, we count the minutes in our own feminist terms. And in this episode, we're continuing our series on the Trump indictments. The former president, Donald Trump, has been indicted over 90 times and across both federal and also state jurisdictions. These are ongoing trials in Washington, D.C., in Georgia, in New York, and other parts of the country. And in this episode, I'm joined again by Professor Anthony Michael Christ. He's an assistant professor at Georgia State University School of Law. He is an expert in both qualitative empirical methods and doctrinal analysis. The bottom line is this, that he has been in the courtroom at every step in the Georgia trials, the Georgia trials that involve the allegation that the former president, Donald Trump, attempted to interfere with the Georgia elections in 2020. And in this episode, he's helping to unpack the most recent hearings involving Fonnie Willis, who is the prosecutor in Georgia, and as well just where those matters stand, both in terms of the prosecution of the former president for attempting to, uh, or allegedly attempting to interfere with the Georgia election, and also just what the most recent hearings mean for Fannie Willis and for the prosecution. Sit back and take a listen. It is such a pleasure to be back with you, Professor Anthony Michael Christ. Thank you so much for joining us on our Trump indictment series. You've been a mainstay in terms of a voice for us, bringing your expertise and, in fact, your own courtroom experience as with at least one aspect of this in Georgia. You've been able to sit through some of the hearings. And so what I want to talk about is what's happening in Georgia right now, if you could unpack exactly what it is that we've been hearing and seeing over the last couple of weeks in Georgia. Well, we're still going through pretrial motions. And so um, there have been a number of different motions that Judge McAfee has been considering. Some of them seem quite parallel to the cases in Washington, D.C., for example, um, with uh, presidential immunity and the supremacy clause and things of that nature. But I think, of course, what everybody's been most focused on recently has been this allegation of wrongdoing on the part of the DA's office um, and Fonnie Willis by having a romantic relationship with one of the contracted uh, special prosecutors, Nathan Wade. And, and for um, as a consequence of that, the defense attorneys have claimed that this is an impermissible bias and that the DA's office should be disqualified and uh, removed from this case. And so that's really where we've been at. Um, and, and uh, well, it's been dramatic, to say the least. Fill us in on some of that drama, because I think you're right. There have been memes, there have been tweets, social media has been aflame with all of this. And I suppose perhaps one place to begin, although there's so many, is that there's this moment when Fannie Willis says, uh, what you've mistaken here is that I'm not on trial, uh, that those who tried to steal the election 
are the people that are on trial. So what exactly is this? Is this a trial? What exactly are we seeing with regard to this Georgia hearing? Well, I think it's really complicated. Um, and, and of course, with social media and, you know, I love my memes and things of that nature, but they don't capture nuance. And there is a lot of nuance here um, because on the one hand, right there, there, I, I think there the the suggestion that there might be something untoward or unethical or perhaps just unwise about Fadi Willis having this romantic relationship, I, I think that that's a legitimate debate to have. But this is also something that is just uh, imbued with issues of race and gender. Um, and I think that's part of what Fadi Willis was talking about, right, that people have put her on trial um, as a way to discredit the entire enterprise of investigating the, the results of the 2020 election um, and the subsequent efforts to overturn it and then prosecute people for bear essentially uh, unwillingness to adhere to democratic principles here in Georgia and and you know abide by the election results and overturn it. Um, and so maybe it might be pretty it might be more useful to kind of uh, start off or go back to how we got here. Exactly. Um, it really yeah. would be because that's part of the texture of this because even if it were that Trump's lawyers say that, um, she shouldn't be prosecuting this case. The case is going to be prosecuted because um, there's already at least um, their tapes of the former president pressuring officials in Georgia to provide him with more votes so that he could carry the state. This is not a federal prosecution. This is um, a state matter that's involving the interference with Georgia's election and states can bring matters such as that. So this doesn't have to be a federal matter. It's a state matter and it's also a state RICO matter. So maybe if you could actually start from the beginning to just remind people, because as you say, this is a tangled web and and it doesn't necessarily have to be as tangled as it is because there are some clarity to this case. Right. So, so let's, so it's probably, you know, let's start from the very beginning for, for a brief second. Um, right. Which is after the information came out that Brad Raffensperger secretary of state here in Georgia was essentially being browbeat by former president Trump in order to change the election results. Um, there were a number of people immediately, myself included. In fact, um, I, I think this came out January 4th, the the information, January, that evening, January 4th, I said, I think this is unlawful and Fannie Willis should investigate. Um, and so there were other people who also joined that call and Fannie Willis eventually heard that call and slowly but surely assembled a team of individuals to pursue an investigation through this special purpose grand jury, which is essentially a grand jury without indictment power here in Georgia that is a simply an investigative body. She assembled, again, a team of lawyers that are, um, you know, uh, staff attorneys in the district attorney's office. But because of the the breadth and the scope and the, you know, the public importance of this case, she um, solicited uh, other people to, to join the team, including those some like former uh, Governor Roy Barnes, who declined to join because the, you know, the, the pressure on people involved in this um, in terms of, right, not just a time commitment, which is exhaustive, no doubt. Um, but you know these are individuals who are under constant threat um, by by folks who uh, lean into political violence as a as a tool of uh, you know their, of of choice for them. Um, and, and in fact, to just take one moment on that, we have seen a verdict against Rudy Giuliani involving um, election uh, workers 
who were threatened and that verdict was in the tens of millions of dollars because uh, decided by a jury that found in fact that he had um that he had spoken in in such a way that was false about these women um and some complicity with trying to um commit some sort of fraud with the election, what have you, and he lost. But to your point with regard to violence, because they experienced death threats and other kinds of things that required them to make various adjustments to their lives, given the, the threats of violence. Right. And, and so, you know, a number of people turned down that that offer to participate in the trial as a special prosecutor. Um, one of the individuals who took on the, the lead prosecutor role, or at least I would I, maybe I would not call him the lead prosecutor per se, but maybe the, the team leader, um, the manager of the entire case is Nathan Wade. Um, and, and of course, Nathan Wade and Fonnie Willis, their relationship is at the center of this motion to disqualify. Um and uh, you know, essentially, you know, um, you know, the allegation is is that Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade had a romantic relationship at or around the same time that he was initially hired, um, and so because he is a special prosecutor, he he you know bills as most lawyers do through billable hours uh, rather than a right a, a salaried position, and uh, in addition to that, right, there was evidence to suggest. That Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade were taking vacations together. People believed that it was possible, if not likely, that perhaps Nathan Wade was paying for Fonnie Willis. So it seemed, um, you know, not that there was ever an allegation of an express kickback or anything like that, but the, you know, there was an appearance that it could have been, you know, said that perhaps Fonnie Willis was benefiting personally in a financial way from from Nathan Wade being on, on the team. Um, and so that's where we, we, where we began with a very scant amount of evidence and a highly salacious uh, you know, bombshell of an allegation. But of course, it was an allegation. And, uh, you know, last week on on between February 15th and February 16th, the, the Fulton County Superior Court and Judge McAfee uh, presiding had an evidentiary hearing to determine what, in fact, was the case. And and I think that that's the first thing I want to kind of like put a pin in, which is the allegations were were incredibly damning, but they were simply allegations. And one of the hard things about this case is that Fonnie Willis in the DA's office has been incredibly careful to not uh, try to wade you know wade into a public debate, not use press conferences to to litigate, right? But to speak through legal filings, and so um, they did not speak to the that. Right, that salacious charge of wrongdoing. And so people were speculating and speculating and speculating and speculating. But it was last week where we had an evidentiary hearing. We have evidence now. And so as I'm sitting through that uh, that hearing in the courtroom, I had to like put my blinders on and think like Judge McAfee has to think, which is, um, you know, let's look at the evidence that's before us and what can we determine. And so Fonnie Wills, you know, essentially said that she and Nathan Wade had a romantic relationship that began after he started his time at the Fulton County DA's office. So this idea that, you know, there was some kind of agreement or intent to profit off the prosecution was you know, undermined by that that statement um, and that evidence. And that was backed up by Nathan Wade as well. And that the relationship fizzled out over the course of the summer of 2023 between, uh, we'll say, May and June and, and August. And so by the time the indictments were coming down and charging decisions were made, um, the relationship was basically over. And so the, the idea that the prosecution, right, post 
grand jury indictment um, was somehow tainted or decisions were made in order to benefit a romantic partner or that Fannie Willis was was benefiting it from it was uh, from the prosecution has been severely undermined by the timing of things. And in addition, there's a, you know, a significant amount of evidence to suggest that Fannie Willis pays for things in cash. Um, and so um, either she paid back Nathan Wade for certain trips and, um, you know, like there was a cruise. And so she paid back in cash for that. Or she did what I think many people do when they travel with friends, which is or, you know, even people that are romantically involved with, which is, you know, you, you don't have a tit for tat ledger where you, you know, you, you try to exactingly figure out how much everybody owes to the penny, um, right? Someone might buy the plane tickets and someone covers the hotel and someone, you know, the other person pays for dinner one night and someone pays for dinner the other night. And the idea with that being, you know, it all balances out in the end. And so at the end of that evidentiary hearing, we basically got to, I think, a, a basic uh, conclusion, at least the one that I drew, which is Bonnie Willis and Nathan Way's relationship was always before the prosecution. Um, the the charging decisions that were made were not influenced by that relationship because the relationship was over. The prosecution has not been influenced by that because the, the relationship never existed um, after the indictments were handed down. Grand jury's decisions, the grand jury itself was not influenced by the relationship because one, the relationship was over. Um, but two, the, the you know, Nathan Wade was not independently the but for cause of the investigation and the and the decision to prosecute, right? There's, you know, I think anybody who was trying to make a selective prosecution claim would have a really hard time showing that there are similarly situated defendants who would have gotten uh, you know, gotten off without having been investigated and potentially prosecuted. So now we're really um now we're at Judge McAfee, uh, you know, that this big kicked out this Judge McAfee. Um, and we'll have summations sometime in the next a uh, few days or a few weeks, it's not clear exactly when when that'll happen. And we'll have to see whether or not a disqualification is is ordered. And if there is a disqualification, I mean, there may not be a disqualification ordered for the very reasons that you've just articulated. Um, and some have said this is a fishing expedition, which has been a part of the Trump team defense strategies across the variety of indictments and litigation taking place. There are lawyers, some have said, that don't want to represent uh, the former president um, for any number of reasons. There are lawyers who themselves have been censured, disbarred, or are under investigation who've been part of uh, his team. But if it were the case that she's disqualified, there are listeners, viewers who would want to know, well, does that mean that the Georgia case goes away? That's a hard question because there's the theoretical answer and then there's the practical answer. The theoretical answer is no, it doesn't go away. What would happen is it would get kicked out to another prosecutor's office. It could also be assigned to a an independent uh a lawyer in the state of Georgia who could take it on uh, without being part of the office, an office. But I think given the amount of resources that this would require, you would absolutely have to go to uh, another county district attorney. Um, the the prosecuting council of Georgia, uh, which is essentially a private entity here in Georgia that represents prosecutors, uh, that the, the head of that entity would pick whoever the DA is. Uh, he suggested that the proximity of the jurisdiction would be really important to him. So um, nearby DeKalb County would probably be um, a likely candidate nearby Gwinnett, nearby uh, Cobb County. Um, they, they, these would probably be the jurisdiction they would go to first. Um, now, 
if that is the case, I, I suspect that there are uh, some of those DAs would be enthusiastic about p- picking up the mantle and and um, continuing on with the case. Um, you know, it's not necessarily true, though, that all of them have the same resources and the ability to do that. And so whether or not they would bring the same kind of full force of of their office to bear in the same way that Fonnie Willis is here uh, in F- Fulton County is doing is, is not guaranteed. Um, now, the other important thing, of course, is that while it is a, a case that would be transferred to another DA's office because the entire office is disqualified, um, the the case itself would not leave Fulton County. So you would still be in Fulton County Court before Judge McAfee, before Fulton County jury. So the, the fundamentals of the case in or the fundamentals of the trial um, are not different. It would just be that the difference would be that this the team would, would be from um, another jurisdiction. Now, of course, the other thing, too, that's also important is not only is the question of bandwidth and political will um kind of dispositive in terms of how you know effective another office will be but the charging not i mean the the decisions about plea bargaining and things of that nature also uh would be up to that that office so maybe there would be a different calculus that would be uh, pursued by a different DA than Fonnie Will. So maybe more deals would be struck. Maybe fewer deals would be struck. Maybe some charges would be let go. So maybe the RICO charges would would fall off, fall apart, and you would see right more narrow slices uh, of of the of the election code being used or something of that nature. So it's you know the case wouldn't go away, but it certainly might not necessarily look the same as it would had Fonnie Willis remained in charge. And that's interesting, too, considering that some have called Fannie Willis the RICO queen, as in she has been very successful uh, with bringing RICO charges successfully with indictments, prosecutions, and convictions. Um, the school teachers um, in Georgia, drug dealers in, in Georgia. So with the RICO charges here, she has quite the track record of prosecuting um, under RICO. And to that end, there are more than 30 uh, individuals. Well, there are more than 30 who are the non-indicted um, co-conspirators. And then there's a wash of, um, of co-conspirators that are indicted um, under this. All right. Um, I know it's, it's always hard to make predictions. It, it is. And, and, and perhaps it's unfair to even ask you this question. But what's your sense in terms of what potentially could be the outcome here? That's a good question. Um, I, I, so I think I'd start off with I have an immense amount of respect for for Judge McAfee. Um, I mean, it's so it's I, I always kind of laugh because um, you know Judge Judge McAfee, um, his wife and I were friends when I was in grad school, and so I, I actually hung out with him like 15 years ago. <laughs> so if you had imagined that we would uh, be in this position today, uh, that would have given me a good laugh. Last week, you would have been in the same courtroom, and we yeah, and yeah, and so it's uh, very interesting to to kind of think back that. But I do have a lot of respect for him. I think he has shown himself throughout this entire uh, trial or, you know, uh, pre, you know, the pretrial process to be exceedingly thoughtful, thorough, and and give everybody, I think, the uh, the process that they believe they want and, and that they're owed. Um, there were people, for example, who 
you know, said that they that they didn't think the evidentiary hearing was necessary or that it was kind of just a dramatic circus. And there was some drama to it. But I think, right, the process matters here because all these things were aired out in public and people can make decisions for themselves and see what the evidence was. And I think if you look at the evidence, it's really thin to suggest that there's something here that tainted this prosecution. And so that's why I, you know, I think if I'm Judge McAfee and I'm truly just looking truly just looking at the evidentiary record and and you know because people will look at the record but they also take into account the the characterization of the evidence by the the briefings from the defense attorneys and right the the weeks and weeks of bad press that da willis received and you know the the mudslinging and all you know they take all that into account but of course that's not evidence and so if you're just looking at the record you know, to me, it's a really, really hard case to make. Um, now, the, here's the other issue, though. If the standard is right, a concrete conflict of interest, which is often the standard that people talk about with prosecutors, um, you know, that if they have a conflict of interest that is concrete in nature, then they must be disqualified. Um, you know, and, and of course, and th these are kinds of things, right, where they prosecute somebody who has a business that is a competitor of a business that they have a financial stake in, or that they are prosecuting somebody, um, and the 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 victim of that crime is somebody related to them, right? Something of that nature. Um, you know, if that's the standard, I don't think that's been met. But the quirky part about Georgia law is it's not clear what the standard is. And so Judge McAfee and other judges before have suggested that perhaps the standard is, um, you know, uh, an appearance of impropriety, um, right, which is a standard that we use for judges typically. And we use that for judges because we want them to be impartial adjudicators. Um, now, prosecutors aren't impartial. They're not adjudicators. And so I don't think that standard personally should apply. But if it does, then I think there's a real question, right, has all this mess has has this kind of nonsense that has come up in the media has a perhaps maybe perfectly lawful decision, but unwise decision to start a romantic relationship in your office for a big case around the, in this nature um, with an, a prosecutor who is a contract employee. Um, is that an, imp an appearance of impropriety? I, I think that's a tougher question. And so so much of the outcome, and that's why I have a hard time making prediction, and 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 it's difficult for me to say, but so much of it this, this is going to be determined based on the standard that Judge McAfee applies. Because if it is that that appearance of impropriety, that's a that's a tough call. Again, if it's a if it's the concrete conflict of interest, I think we have no problem. Disqualification is completely dead on arrival. But you know that that kind of more ethical standard. As opposed to a right, a concrete piece of, of of evidence to say that there's a conflict, I, I think that that's that makes all the difference. Anthony, thank you so very much. I truly, truly appreciate your joining us. I'm very happy to join you. Guests and listeners, that's it for today's episode of On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin at Ms. Magazine. I want to thank each of you for tuning in for the full story and engaging with us. We hope you'll join us again for our next episode, where you know we'll be reporting, rebelling, and telling it just like it is. For more information about what we discussed today, head to MsMagazine.com and be sure to subscribe. And if you believe, as we do, that women's voices matter, that equality for all persons can 
cannot be delayed, and that rebuilding America and being unbought and unbossed and reclaiming our time are important, then be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin at Ms. Magazine in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Wherever it is that you receive your podcast, we are ad-free and reader-supported. Help us reach new listeners by bringing this hard-hitting content in which you've come to expect and rely upon by subscribing. Let us know what you think about our show and please support independent feminist media. Look for us at MsMagazine.com for new content and special episode updates. And if you want to reach us, please do so. Email us at OnTheIssuesAtMsMagazine.com. We do read our mail. This has been your host, Michelle Goodwin, reporting, rebelling, and telling it just like it is. On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin is a Ms. Magazine joint production. Michelle Goodwin and Kathy Spiller are our executive producers. Our producers for this episode are Roxy Zoll, Oliver Hogg, and also Allison Whelan. Our social media content producer is Sophia Panagrahi. The creative vision behind our work includes art and design by Brandy Phipps, editing by Holland, and music by Chris J. Lee.